0: Welcome again to SunWest, Uh, if you're new here, special welcome to you, and uh, we're in the middle of a series, I think, are we in week six? Uh, Week six of a series called Long Story Short, and it feels like long story long, if I'm being honest. Uh, This is a long story. We're looking at the story of the Bible from front to back, Genesis to Revelation, and we, uh, or I just felt like it was really important for us as a faith community to get a kind of a handle on the whole story of Scripture from beginning to the end because it's when we have the whole story in mind that we can often recognize what God is doing in the midst of those stories, uh, in the little, little stories along the way, including our own story because it's not only a story about the Bible, it's also a story about us, uh, a story that includes us. And so we began the series by looking at the creation story where, where God uh, creates the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the water, and uh, he, he spends uh, six days doing that, rests on the seventh day, and then it only takes us three chapters to screw the whole thing up. Changes the whole story. But it's not the end of the story. In fact, that's actually the beginning of the story. And God uh, calls a people to himself. He calls Abraham, a person, uh, to himself uh, that he, and promises that he'll be the father of a great nation that'll have as many descendants as the sand on the shore, the stars in the sky. And th- there was a problem with that promise, though, because Abraham was only 75. Uh, only 75. Abraham was already 75. And it wouldn't be till Abraham was 100 years old that he would uh, have the son that would become the heir to that promise. And so we see generation after generation from there that God is actually uh, fulfilling his promise. He's multiplying his people. And eventually, several hundred years later, they end up as slaves in Egypt. And they spend 400 years as slaves in Egypt uh, until God sends Moses. And Moses helps bring the people out of the promised land uh, into, or sorry, out of Egypt uh, into the promised land. But the problem there was that they didn't go right to the promised land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. It spent They spent 40 years in the wilderness because it took that long to get Egypt out of them. You know, God took them out of Egypt in one day, but it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of them. I just want to pause really quick because some people were asking last week about uh, just follow-up and resources based on the, when we looked at the conquest, when they went out of the wilderness into the promised land and, uh, I've been using a lot of different material uh, to put the sermons together for this series, but I just want to highlight this one from last week. If you want to dive further into the conquest and, uh, you know, the violence in the Old Testament versus this nonviolent God that we see in Jesus, this is a great resource for you to look at, uh, Cross Vision, uh, written by Greg Boyd. Uh, Another one I'm going to highlight this morning is a book that every Christian should read. It's called The Tale of Three Kings. It's a quick read, and you can read it in under two hours. It's only 96 pages and, uh, and the pages don't even have a lot of text on them. So even for the non-readers, you got any non-readers in the room? Okay, even for the non-readers in the room, this would be a, a great read for you. Um, incredibly powerful read. I've read it a couple of times, uh, and I'm going to be referring to that in the sermon this morning. So God takes the people out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years, and then he brings them into the, the promised land, which is what we looked at last week. And he begins to divide uh, the area of the promised land according to the different tribes. So remember that the, the tribes of Israel, those were descendants of the, uh, the sons of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And then all these years later, we see that God has fulfilled this promise that he has multiplied his people and that they are inheriting the promised land. And, uh, and then we move into this time of Judges. And God had given the law and he established judges, people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah to administer the law. They were people that operated as religious leaders, political leaders, and judicial leaders, and sometimes even military leaders. Yet, the Israelites looked around at their neighbors, and they said, I want what my neighbors have. Fortunately, that's only an issue from thousands of years ago. We don't, we don't struggle with that anymore. Uh... But at the time, in this ancient time, you know, they struggled with coveting stuff that their neighbors had. And so they, they looked around, they, they, they said, our neighbors don't do this judges thing. Uh, they do something completely different. They have kings. God, we would like a king. And it says in Judges seventeen six, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so we see that. That sin was kind of running rampant. That people were doing whatever they want. They'd forgotten the law, forgotten the Torah that we talked about. They were looking at their their neighbors, and they said, we want a king just like them. And we also read in Judges that generations had passed since the events of Egypt, since the miraculous things that God had done in the wilderness. And we had a new generation that inherited the promised land, and that this generation grew up not remembering... Or obeying the Lord, they forgot the story and they lost their way. And here's a pattern in the people of God. That God often does something in a generation, and in the following generations, and this this is why it's important and why God commands uh, the Israelites to keep telling the story. And he gives them festivals and practices to reenact the story and say, teach your kids who will teach their kids who will teach their kids because the story is important. If you forget the story, you're going to forget your identity and what you're a part of, that you're part of something bigger than you. The problem is when you keep retelling stories about God in the past, it feels like God's in the past. You know what I'm saying? At some point, the next generation has to encounter God in a new way. Each generation could only base their faith on the stories of the past for so long. Retelling the stories is important. Inherited faith is important, but equally important is fresh encounters with the living God in every generation. How many of you guys came to Mexico tonight night on Thursday night? What a powerful night. And the reason it was so powerful is because we're not talking about, hey, check out what God did in the past in the glory days, but we're talking about what God did today. Not back then, but now. And so this generation grew up hearing stories about the past, but actually having no stories of their own to tell today. And so they, they get jealous, they start coveting what their neighbors have that they don't have, we want a king, God, just like they have. And so it comes to the last judge of Israel named Samuel. And so Samuel's disappointed because Samuel, this prophet, this judge, knows that this, is when, this wasn't God's plan, and... God says to Samuel, do everything they say to you. The Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed their gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about a way the king, the way a king will rule or will reign over them. They say, give us a king because they looked around at the nations and they wanted to be like the other nations. And Samuel took that to God and God said, give them what they want. And we'll see this idea and this principle from the beginning of Scripture to the end that God created us as free beings, beings with authority, beings that were intended to co-partner with God in what he's doing in the world. And this is what we talked about in the first couple of weeks of the sermon series. With that, God has given us authority And in our human choices, in our human decisions, God honors the way he created us by creating us as free beings, and often he will give us what we want even when it's not what he wants. If you are determined to want something that God doesn't want, God will give you what you want, but he will also give you the consequences of that decision we see that principle here, do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will rule over them. And it's in this way the era of the kingdom of Israel began. So it starts by the the name of a man named Saul, who began to reign in about 1050 BC. And as you look at the biblical story, you might ask, why does God tend to use such flawed people? Why does he even go to some of these jokers when they're so messed up? And here's the deal. I myself end up asking often, why does God use such flawed people? And often we think in categories of good, bad, hero, and villain. But the reality is those are man-made constructions and Every single one of us is a mixed bag. That's what we see in Scripture. Every single one of us has something beautiful running through us, but also something evil and broken running through us. Every single one of us holds potential, but we also hold flaws. The only hero in the Bible, the only real hero, is Jesus. Jesus. That's where the whole story is going. That's why we talk about this Jesus-centric reading of Scripture. The whole thing is actually going towards Jesus. Everybody else is a mixed bag. There are people like us that are born with tremendous God-given potential, but also have a propensity for doing the things that God doesn't want. But God, honoring the way that he created us to live in free relationship with us, often gives us what we want. So this story of the Bible is a story of God, who shows himself to be faithful, even though often people are unfaithful. So Samuel goes to Saul and anoints him as king. Saul's name means asked for, which is very fitting, because he's been asked for by the people. We want a king, just like the other nations. God, give us a king. God says, okay, this is what you asked for. This is Saul. He was anointed by Samuel, he was appointed by God, he was popular and elected by the people, he prophesied, and he had amazing victory very early on over some surrounding nations, and this kind of sealed his reign. And so things started off really, really good. And it says that he was handsome, and he had leadership qualities, and you know, you would look at Saul, and you would think, that's a stand-up guy, that's, even though it's not how we know him now, that's how he was known before the story unfolded. Things started off great. He looked like a great candidate to be the king. In 1 Samuel 13, read that he was facing a battle with the Philistines, and Samuel had told him to wait, not to go into battle until I can get there and offer the sacrifices, because we don't want to go into battle without God's presence being with us. But meanwhile, the Philistine army is growing larger and larger, and the Israelite army is shrinking and shrinking. That's a little bit of a problem when you're in battle. And so Saul is getting impatient, and he's waiting there one day, two days, three days, four days. He waits there. Seven days. Samuel hasn't shown up yet. And then what happens in verse 8, after he would waited, that Samuel decided, to, or Saul decided to take things into his old, old, own hands. Saul became impatient. Everybody say, impatient. And I think we can understand Saul's impatience. He's looking around with human eyes and he's saying, we're going to lose this battle. Israel's going to be Crushed. Despite the promises that God had given them, but he relies less on the promises and more on his human eyes. And he he looks at the things through human perspective and says, I have to take things into my own hands because the way I see it, this isn't going to end well. And so he took matters into his own hands. He had become so accustomed to his position and power and authority that he stepped outside of his bounds, outside of what God had commanded, outside what God wanted to do. And he decided to take the role of Samuel and do what was Samuel's job. And he misused his authority and he stepped into a role that was not his to take to offer a sacrifice that he wasn't authorized to make. And that is the beginning of the downfall of Saul. God, I'm not going to do it your way anymore. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to be patient because you obviously aren't seeing things the way I'm seeing them. So, God, I know you're a pretty smart guy. Uh, But I don't know if you got your blindfolds on. I, I need to take matters into my own hand. This was the downfall. And so Samuel gets upset. And he says, he replies to Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. What we see with Saul is that his outward power did not match his inward maturity. On the exterior, he was strong. On the interior, he was weak. But let me ask you a question. Was Saul not anointed by God? Samuel came and anointed God. Was Saul gifted? Yes. Yes. Did Saul have everything in his repertoire to be the king that God had called him to be? Yes. But we see something here in the story that anointing, calling, does not equal maturity. You can be anointed. You can be called. God might have a great destiny for you, but that's no guarantee that you are going to step into it. How you carry that anointing, how you carry that calling, how you carry that sense of what God is calling you to do in your life is probably even more important than the call itself. Saul forfeits the calling and the anointing that God had given him because he decided to do it his own way. And I probably shouldn't even use the word forfeiting because God, God actually didn't take away the anointing. God didn't actually take away the calling we see that God left him in that position. That God left him in authority. That God allowed him to continue to make decisions, to continue to lead, to continue to to live in the consequences of those decisions. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king because God is saying, there needs to be another king after Saul. Saul was still on the throne, but it is known that, but it is known that his time on the throne is coming to an end. So Jesse brings out all of his sons. Lines up all seven of them. Sammy goes through them. And he just kind of looks at them and he says, this isn't the one. It's not the one. It's not the one. Do you have any other sons, Jesse? Yeah, we got another one. He's out in the fields watching the sheep. And so he brings in the youngest, the, the eighth son. And Samuel says to go get him immediately they go get him. And Samuel says, this is the one. This is the one. David is anointed, and his name means favored or beloved, which is fitting because he would be, one of, he would be the most favored and beloved king that Israel would ever have. David was also incredibly handsome and good-looking, just like Saul. But notice what, the, what God says when Samuel goes to anoint David says, the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you and I see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So David, equally handsome, equally charismatic, equally looks the part of king, but there's something different about him, and God says, look at his heart, Samuel. And so, very shortly, we read the story of Goliath, which many of you probably know, but in 1 Samuel 17, there's this enemy, Goliath, a Philistine, and the the Israelites were against the Philistines. And for 40 days, Goliath was strutting his stuff in front of the Philistines, in front of the Israelites, mocking them, trash-talking them. He's taunting them. Nobody's willing to fight him. He's saying, bring out somebody to fight me, and they're all like in the, all the, the Jews are in this fetal position. They, they just don't know what to do with themselves, and they're scared. And so David shows up on the scene because his father Jesse calls him in from the field and says, hey, go bring your brothers who are out with the army, go bring them some lunch. So David brings them lunch, and David hears Goliath mocking, and he says, give me a chance. Give me a chance to fight him. Now, David likely wouldn't have had the faith to fight Goliath if it weren't for his years spent alone in the field. Because David's response is, you know, I've been been in the field. I've been protecting sheep. I've fought lions and defeated lions. I've fought bears and I've defeated bears because God has been with me. And so if God is with me there, I trust that God's going to be with me now. Give me a chance. We don't usually start with Goliaths. We start with smaller things. Often we dream about these Goliath moments in our lives where, you know, this public thing where, you know, everybody will see what I'm made of, that uh, I can do, I I have goals, I've accomplished these goals. uh, But the problem is, when we just focus on the Goliath moment and not the process of how we got to the Goliath moment, we miss out how God actually prepares us for these appointed moments. God was preparing David For years before he ever saw Goliath, we start living out our calling in the places where nobody is looking. Nobody was looking at David when he was in the fields by himself, he had no audience. It was just him and God and a bunch of sheep. Those who had the positions as soldiers weren't prepared for the battle in front of them. So I want you to think about this for a second. You have all the, this army. They've, been, they've, they've gone to seminary to be, but to be soldiers in ministry. Now I'm not against seminary. I went to seminary. But they've been prepared. This was their moment, your public moment. Here's Goliath. He's mocking you. you you've trained for this. You know, step out, fight Goliath. The people who had the position or the title of authority to fight Goliath didn't step into it, but the one who had no position, no title, the one who was a nobody took up the opportunity because that's the way he's been living his whole life. Many of us think that we have to have a position of influence and then we'll begin to live in a certain way. We'll begin to live out the dreams that God's given us, but the problem is if you're going to live out the dreams that God has given you, it starts in the places where nobody's looking. Integrity. David didn't wait for a position of influence before he lived in obedience to God. The opportunity to take down Goliath was a direct result of the faithful obedience that David lived in the wilderness when not a single person was looking. David begins to gain popularity after he steps out. He defeats Goliath. And then people start singing songs. You know, Saul's killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. What does that do to Saul? Drives him crazy. It makes Saul very jealous. Now, David wasn't just a talented little shepherd boy. He was also a talented harpist. Saul would often have David come and play his harp for him. You know, being a king is a stressful job. It creates a lot of anxiety. And he found that when David played his harp, it kind of set him at ease. It, It gave him peace. But sometimes Saul's resentment of David got the better of him. And there's a couple of times that Saul, in his madness, decided to throw a spear at David and try and kill him. So here's a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? What do you do? I think you've got a couple of options. One, you just stand there and you take the hit. You get wounded. And I can look around and see people that have been hit by spears by those who are in authority over them. Because they have a shade of bitter to them. And it wasn't your fault. But somebody threw a spear at you and you get wounded. and maybe that bitterness we didn't plan for it it wasn't intended but it's 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 grown if you get wounded and that wound if not attended to will cause bitterness or rage or jealousy and before you know it you actually become as mad as the person that threw the spear at you so I think it's one of the, the one of the things we can do when someone throws a spear at you we just we just we just take it the other thing you can do is you can duck you can pick up that spear and do what with it you, You throw that sucker right back. You'd have every right to, wouldn't you? I mean, he tried to kill you. I mean, you could pick up that spear. You don't want to get pushed around like that. However, you pick up that spear and you throw it back, my guess is that it will become easier and easier for you to build a pattern in your life of when conflict comes, you just simply throw spears. And pretty soon, again, you're mad just like the king that threw the spear at you. Now, I've told the story a a number of times, and so uh, my guess is most of you have heard this, but I need to share it again, because this, in many ways, I feel like, uh, you know, I had someone give me a a prophetic word maybe a decade ago to study David. Um, And so there's some sermons that you get to give that, you know, are just truth or good sermons, and there's some sermons you get to give that you feel like you, you actually relive some of your story when you tell it. And, uh, and, I, and I talk about the story even in our Hearing God course, but a number of years ago, it would have been about 12, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, I was a young whippersnapper here at SunWest, and uh, I got out of Bible school. Um, I had great ideas of what I felt like God was calling me to, and I had, I, w- I had aspirations, and I, you know, and I went around Calgary, and I applied at different churches for internships, and I got turned down church after church, church after church after church. And finally, there was, uh, you know, this was about 15 years ago, but finally there was, a, there was a guy named Willie that decided, you know, I'm willing to take a risk on you. And, uh, and so there's some common friendships, and so I got the opportunity to take that, that job, and uh, I finished my internship after you know, eight months. And, uh, and at the end of that eight months, in the, during that time, uh, our youth pastor had left. There wasn't a youth pastor at the time. And I said to Willie, I don't know if God's told you yet, but let me tell you on behalf of God, I'm your guy. I, the prophet, have spoken. And Willie said, I don't think God's telling me the same thing. It's like, ugh. Oh. Okay, so am I done my internship? No, you can just keep serving. We'll keep paying you like an intern. Okay, so I was making, I was making 27 grand a year. Uh, Lisa and I were just married. And, uh, and then we had, we had Joel uh, sometime in that span. We had Joel that was going to come on the way. And, uh, and I remember having this these conversations with Willie. I was like, okay, hey, you can't expect me to be an intern forever. You know, a year went by. And then he, and then he placed some people in authority over me. There was a guy named, by the name of Kevin McKinnis. <sighs> uh, so, Ke- <laughs> Kevin's awesome. So, Ke- so Kevin, Kevin, Kevin was on staff, and he was on staff basically to babysit me as a as a young whippersnapper. Uh, and then there's a lady named Suzanne, and I went through uh, three years of this. And uh, and I was frustrated. I was like, I'm 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 doing all the work. I I, I mean I'm i 'm doing everything i 'm running the youth group i i i i 'm a youth pastor, except you're not paying me as a youth pastor and then I got into Willie 's office one time and I was so upset and I looked at him and I yelled at him and I said, This is bull and I screamed it at him and then, as soon as those words left my mouth, I was like can i i want I want to take him back i was like but don't but don't fire me and and to Okay, to, and it was a miracle after the spears that I felt like I was throwing back at Willie uh, that he didn't fire me. Uh, and so I was just angry. And, and I can remember just, you know, fuming. And Lisa and I just, you know, she did a lot of listening in those days. And I would just, um, And then one night, uh, I had a dream. And uh, in, in my dream... We were on a camping trip with the youth group. And I remember all the adult leaders were leaving the kids, one by one. And I remember in the dream, also Kevin McInnes was in the dream, and he said, Man, I got to leave. And I said, This isn't fair. You know, you guys are all leaving, and I'm expected just to stay here and keep doing what I'm doing. And I said, I'm leaving too. But I remember Kevin took the last vehicle, and so I had to walk. And so I'm walking. It tells you how I felt, right? i was just like getting left behind. And I'm walking. And the, left the kids behind all by themselves at the campground. The sky goes from uh, bright and sunny to dark, and storm clouds start coming in. And it starts raining and thundering. Uh, the The ground goes from like this flat gravel road to like this mountainous range, and now I'm climbing mountains, and then I fall into this crevice and I get stuck. And then there's this lion that comes over the crevice, and I can see his eyes, and he jumps, and he's going to pounce on me, and I wake up in a cold sweat. And there's a number of times in my life where, where God, where I wake up and I'm like, and I feel the presence of God in that dream, and I. And I don't know how to articulate it to you, but like God was speaking something to me. And, and, I, and I woke up, and I thought, that's the, that's the lion from 1 Peter. That, 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 that's what was in my heart when I saw the lion. I didn't remember what First Peter said. I just remember there was a lion somewhere in 1 Peter. And, uh, and so I go to 1 Peter chapter 5. And I was looking like, you know, God's going to release me from my role here. Like, God, give me a way out. Um, I didn't tell you. In, in the midst of all this, I was, I was applying at other churches, and I was actually in the interview process with another church to become a youth pastor to get the position I wanted that Willie wasn't willing to give me. So all this was happening. And then I opened First Peter 5, and it says this. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Let me say that again. Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And I was convinced it wasn't God speaking. For the next week, I would, I would, I would wake up, and I would read this text over and over again, trying to find some way that... Because um, it talks about elders and younger people, right? And so I would, you know, Willie, you know, talking, you need... like. Uh, I was trying to find a way to actually push it back on Willie like it's his fault. Uh, and then no matter how hard I could twist it, uh, I knew that God was pushing something in me. And and I went into Willie and I went to his office and I, I repented and I asked him to forgive me. Because I was trying to do something in a way that was not in line with with him, not in line under his authority, I was trying to find my own authority, to pursue my own calling that I, that I was convinced that, the God, that God had given me, but in my own way, in my own time, because I was getting impatient. So I started applying at other places, and I tell Willie this, I repented, he was like, I, I already knew you were applying at other places. He's like, don't you think word gets around? It's like, that pastor already called me. I knew exactly what was happening. Um, something, when my heart changed and, I, and ultimately submitting to Willie was actually about submitting to God. God, I'm going to choose to submit myself to you align myself under you. Uh, and then within that year, I, I received the position that I was wanting in my heart, but my heart was different. And it wasn't because I asked for it, it was because it was given to me in God's time. See, we see David doesn't throw a spear. David doesn't pick up the spear. David doesn't even get wounded by the spear. He doesn't even get bitter. And so David runs. He's running away from Saul, and he's hiding in caves. And, he, and it's important to know that when David runs away, he runs away alone. David doesn't say, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to get all these people, and they're going to follow me. And, uh, because Saul doesn't recognize You know who I am? He says, I'm going to run away alone. I don't want to divide the kingdom. And so he runs away alone. But often wounded people are attracted to people who are running, the people who have experienced hardship in their lives as well. And so what happens is all these men actually start to rally around David as well. We know these days as David's pre-king days, but David didn't know that these were pre-king days. For all he knew, these were his last days. For all he knew, this was normal life. And so he's in the caves, and he's weeping, and he's mourning, and he's crying, and he's afraid for his life, but he doesn't want to dishonor God, and he doesn't want to divide a kingdom, and so he just worships. And and, and this is where we get many of the psalms written. If you go through the book of Psalms, you'll see many psalms from David written in this time. And so he's worshiping. And wouldn't you know it, he's hiding in a cave, and King Saul walks into a cave to relieve himself. Now, there's a few things I know in my life, and one of those things is when a man is relieving himself, he is, there's no other point in his life where he's more, more vulnerable than that point. That's, that's why on the Mexico trip, when a kid gets out of the van to go to the bathroom, it's incredibly fun just to start driving the van away inch by inch by inch. Because, you know, do I, you know, they don't even know what to do. I can't run. I, you know, if I run, that's going to be disaster. Uh, so Saul's completely vulnerable. And here's David who's been praying that God would restore him, that God would, would go back to the anointing that he gave him. Remember, God, you called me. That God would deliver him. That God would crush the enemies in his life that are coming to take his life. And you would think for praying that, for seeking the Lord on that, and then Saul shows up, and it's like, is this not the divine moment that I've been praying for? You know, wouldn't that be logical? David even has a community around him that says, David, sword, he's taking a leak. Now's your chance. Kill him. David wouldn't do it. David would not kill the Lord's anointed. David would not take matters into his own hands. David would not be impatient like Saul was impatient. Instead, David sneaks up and seizes the robe and secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Even though he was defenseless, Saul leaves the cave and David goes out of the cave and calls to him. And he says, I could have taken your life and I didn't. No matter how you treat me, I will continue to submit to God. I refuse to throw spears back at you, even though you've thrown spears at me. And Saul's like, He has a sobering moment. He decides not to take David's life. But we see that didn't really change his heart either. What if David would have thrown that spear or took Saul's head off when he was defenseless? No doubt he would have been temporarily satisfied. He would have been justified. But wouldn't David have gone through the same cycle that Saul went through? He actually forfeited his alignment under God's authority because he decided to take matters into his own hands. God had work to do in David, and God was using these 10 years, 10 years plus, to mold him, to shape him, to forge a trusting bond with him and prepare his internal character for the calling that he had on his life. And we see in these times that David does this. It says, David found strength in the Lord his God. In the NIV it says, he strengthened himself in the Lord. Do you rely on rallying other people to get strength? We talked about this last week with scapegoating. Or have you developed a capacity as a worshiper of God to strengthen yourself in the Lord? David learned how to strengthen himself and the Lord in his worship of God. Samuel, the last judge of Israel, dies, and with him goes Saul's direct connection to God. Saul continues in his unwillingness to submit to God. God eventually removes Saul from the throne in an epic battle where the Philistines defeat Saul's army, kill his sons, and then Saul ends up taking his own life. David receives word of this, and he rejoices. No. He mourns. Weeps. He's not a mad king. We, we see in these moments David's alignment with the heart of God. But, but David's mourning, even though Saul was his enemy. David, once a shepherd boy and the eighth son of Jesse, had as many as 30 years after being anointed by Samuel to the moment that he took the throne. 30 years. Refusing to circumvent the authority of God, refusing to take things... In, impatiently into his own hands now make make no mistake about it david made a lot of mistakes david would sleep with another man's wife have a kid he would kill the other guy in order to cover up his sin We fast forward 20 years, and Jerusalem is now the epicenter of the spiritual and political power, and David is now an older king. Suddenly, 50 men are running ahead of a chariot, and you might think, yeah, you know, it looks a lot like David, but it wasn't. This was actually David's youngest son, or David's son, Absalom. He's handsome, just like his dad, just like Saul. He was charismatic, he had all the makings to be the king and the leader that people wanted. But he was dangerously ambitious. He was next in line for the throne, but unlike David who waited for God's authority to be granted to him, Absalom did not want to wait. Absalom no longer wanted to submit to his father, God's anointed one, the king David. Now we all have a little bit of Absalom in us, don't we? We don't like to wait our turn. We want authority now. We want what we're waiting for now. Maybe some of you have used this subversive submission that Absalom used if you did, here's my word for you. will spend your time in that role. If, if you ever get authority or the position or the place you're trying to get to by the means of Absalom, which I'm going to articulate in a second, you will spend the rest of your time in that position or authority looking over your shoulder because you're suspecting that there's someone that's going to take that position the same way that you did. Throwing spears is no way to gain authority, and neither is, calc- is calculating a coop, which is what Absalom did. Watch this. 2 Samuel 15, after this Absalom bought a chair and horses and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him, he got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city when the people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring me their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. But ah, I'm not, so. But when people would try to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and he kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came into the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. He did this for four years. Going to the gate. Stopping people on their way to David. Presenting himself like he's completely aligned with the kingdom of David. No, don't, don't make me king. Don't bow before me. You know, David's your king, but it's just too bad that David, you know, he's... Too bad he didn't have a different king. Subtly, he's planting seeds of distrust and rebellion. Next, he deceived David and asked permission to leave Jerusalem and go to Hebron. There he stepped out of the shadows of his conspiracy, named himself the next king of Israel, and rallied those who he had passively yet aggressively turned against his father for four years. Without God's blessing or anointing, he rallied the men of Israel against God's anointed one, David. We all have a little bit of Absalom in us. So, what did David do? One might assume as king he fortified the city and rallied the troops. That would make sense. I'm the king now. So I, you know, I rally my troops. I can protect the kingdom from my son. But no, he didn't. What did he do? He quietly exited Jerusalem and he left, just like he did years ago when Saul was against him. I will submit this to God's will. This was his posture. If he brings me back to Jerusalem, so be it. If he does not, so be it. A broken-hearted, exhausted David fled to the countryside just like he did as a young, anointed, future king. And then Absalom rallied his best men to ride, track David down, and kill him. David's mighty men formed a line to confront Absalom's force, and David's outnumbered men, strengthened by God, overwhelmed Absalom's rebellion same beautiful flowing hair that everybody at the time thought was super attractive and made him this great, handsome, king-like figure got caught in a tree and he lay hanging there. And then David's men came to him and killed him despite what David told them not to kill him. And then we read these words of David and he mourns, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I had died Instead of you, I want to pause here in the story and I want to share a song with you before I close the sermon this morning. Uh, in this song, uh, I think I've perhaps shed more tears over than any other song. This is the song of David coming to grips with how his sin has actually affected his own family. Take a listen. Isn't that a powerful song? Song written by Pierce Pettis, if you want to look it up. It was also covered by Steve Bell. Uh, that song just rocks me uh, and I, because what, what we see in that song is a couple of realities that the sin in your life actually doesn't affect just you. For the legacy that David left for the great king that he was, he still had sin in his life that had consequences that he couldn't outrun. Uh, in fact, it was, he was told by a prophet that his sins were actually going to affect His own family and the nation. And they were right. And we see in that song this reality that David wasn't perfect, despite that he was heralded throughout all history as Israel's greatest king. So if Saul wasn't perfect, and David wasn't perfect, and Absalom wasn't perfect, what made David a man after God's own heart? What made him different? He had his flaws. What was it about David as a young lad that prevented him from becoming an Absalom? What was it about David as a king that prevented him from becoming a Saul? This is what the book that Gene Edwards wrote, A Tale of Three Kings, is all about, and I would encourage you to read it. But we see the same characteristics that made David a man after God's own heart were true when he was young and they were true when he was old despite his flaws. One of them is submission. He submitted to God, and he submitted submitted to human authority in his life. Regardless of the circumstances that were going on around him, he chose to submit. Now, submission is like this bad word that we don't ever want to talk about nowadays, but it's a biblical word, and true submission actually gives life. When you come under the kingship of God, of Jesus, it brings life. Patience. For 30 years, David was patient. Most of the sin we see from God's people in this biblical story has been the result of impatience. But that didn't mark David. Yeah, he had his own sins, but impatience wasn't one of them. Brokenness. We see this in Psalm 51 where he's repenting and he's broken because of the sins that he committed with Bathsheba when he slept with her and when he killed Uriah. And he recognizes the extent of the sin and how it's affecting his family and would eventually take the life of Absalom. We see this broken spirit. We see, when you look at Saul and Absalom, they don't become more broken. They become more hard. They dig in their heels. They fight harder. But David did the opposite. When he realized that he was working against God, he became broken. Far be it from me to be against God. He was teachable. And he had the ability to strengthen himself in the Lord when nobody was looking. He didn't look to strengthen himself by rallying people around him. He went away and he worshiped the one who made him. And he was strengthened in the Lord. And because of that, he had integrity. He was who he was all the time. Whether people were looking or whether people weren't looking, David was David. The same characteristics that prevented David from becoming an Absalom were the same characteristics that prevented him from becoming a Saul. Now let's be honest for a second. How many of you can think of someone in your life that needs to hear this message this morning? Got any honest people out there? How many of you can think of souls in your life... Uh, just put on. I can think of a soul in my life that needs to hear this message. How many of you can think of some absaloms in your life, those, those millennials that are working for you? How many of you think of Absaloms in your life that need to hear this message this morning? My assumption is that as I was speaking, you viewed yourself as David. And then I would ask you, how do you think Absalom and Saul viewed themselves? Absalom thought he was a David. That the throne was rightfully his. That his dad in his way was power hungry and was out of touch and you were the next in line. He was the next in line. He had made some pretty big mistakes anyways. Saul saw himself as a rightful king anointed by God to lead. So... Here's the point, is that Absaloms will always view those in authority over them as Saul's. Absaloms will always view those in authority over them as Saul's. The guy that's standing in my way from becoming who I'm supposed to be. Where God actually might be using that person in your life to do something in your heart to prepare you for what he has in store for you. it could take a year it could take 30 years it took 30 years for David and Saul's always view those under them with a calling an anointing perhaps God's hand is them but they must be an Absalom and here's the difference for a David David never says David never says well he's a Saul David never says he's an Absalom. David's response throughout the entire story is, I'm ultimately accountable to God. God's my king. Davids are more interested in their own heart than what's going on around them. Davids want God's will to be done in their life more than they want any position of authority. Davids aren't perfect, but Davids are broken. I'm going to invite you to Stand, and as you're standing, I invite you to close your eyes as we close the service this morning. I'm speaking to the generations here. I want you to just put up your hand. If you have anybody, I'm going to use the word, the term under you. You got kids under you. You got employees under you. You got, you know, you got volunteers under you. I don't know what it is. Put up your hand if you got somebody under you. Put put up your hand. Now put up your hand if you got somebody over you. You got parents above you. You got bosses. You got leaders. So here's the temptation that the enemy comes to you and I with is to, if there's somebody over you, For you to believe that that person is a Saul and to justify your actions. But in doing that, you actually run the risk of becoming an Absalom. In the same way, if you have somebody under you, the the enemy comes and tries to convince you that the person under you is an Absalom. And if you actually buy into that mentality and that thinking, you become a Saul. God says, forget about it. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whether you're under, whether you're over, whether you're in authority, whether you're under authority... The reality is I'm inviting you to all come under my authority. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And there's some of you that are on the trajectory of Absalom or Saul, and God is inviting you this morning to come under the authority of Jesus. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are going around you. What matters is if you actually submitted your life to Jesus. Jesus. I'm going to pray and I invite you if you've never submitted your life to Jesus or maybe you did a long time ago when you realize that you've been building your own kingdom and without knowing it you've actually been turning into an Absalom or Saul and God's calling you to become a broken David. But you pray in your hearts with me. Jesus. You are my king. I am sorry for the ways that I have been impatient that I've sinned against you by doing things my own way? Would you forgive me? I choose to come under your lordship, under your kingship, to follow you regardless of what's going on in the world around me. Thank you for leading me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for being my God and my king. I invite you to search your heart. David prays, God, search me, know me, show me if there's any offensive way in me. If there's rebellion somewhere in your heart, what are you going to do? With uh, as we are worshiping in that song, I, uh, my mind went actually to baptism. We're, we're having a baptism service here in a couple of weeks at our Easter service. This might be for someone this morning that you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you've actually never taken the the step of being baptized, which he actually commanded you to do. There's very few, actually, he just left you as a commandment, and baptism was one of them. Um, And yet, for maybe reasons that you've justified in your mind, you've said, oh, it doesn't matter, I don't need to become baptized. Uh, And this actually might be a question of submission to the kingship of Jesus for you. Maybe choosing to be baptized in a couple weeks is actually you dying to self and saying, Jesus, you're my king. I'm not going to build my own kingdom. I'm actually all about you, and I don't care who knows it. So I invite you to consider that. Maybe that's the the next step that God is actually calling you to make, is to be baptized. If you prayed that prayer with me at the end of service, I invite you to come forward. Uh, Now as we close the service, uh, our prayer teams are going to come forward. And they'd just love to connect with you, pray with you, uh, and perhaps give you some next steps of how you can grow in your relationship with Christ. And uh, yeah, so come forward. They'd love to pray with you. Starting point, uh, week one is today. That's a great place to start. Uh, know God. And that's what week one is all about. And you can jump on board with that today. Or if you're volunteering and haven't done starting point yet, we would encourage you to, to jump on board. Let me pray as we close. Uh, Father, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I thank you that Jesus, that you demonstrated what it means to be in authority and you demonstrated what it means to be under authority, that you did both of those things perfectly. So Lord, whether we're young or old, whether we have people under us, over us, Jesus, you are the example that we choose to follow on how to orient our lives and align under the Father. So Lord, I pray for those hearts that have some rebellion in them, Lord, that aren't aligning under you, that you would woo them, that you would call them to yourself, not because they have to, Because, Lord, you give us what you want, but because they want to, because they know that in you is true life, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that you have come to give life in all of its fullness. And so we joyfully align our hearts under your lordship, and we pray this in Jesus' powerful name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week.